On Wednesday morning, I was uh, studying for this week's sermon at a local coffee shop, en route coffee shop here in Goodyear, as I often do. And about mid-morning, a large family gathered uh, at some chairs not too far from where I was sitting. And I could tell from the beginning that this, this family seemed unusually boisterous for a weekday morning at the coffee shop. They were, they were pretty loud, the kids were, and the, the parents really weren't doing a whole lot to quiet them. And I found myself growing increasingly annoyed at their lack of consideration. And then to top it all off, friends, the mom had the gall to open her laptop and play a video loudly for everyone in the group to hear. And I'm thinking, really, lady? I mean, I'm, I'm looking around to see, am I the only one that's getting bothered by what's, what's going on? And then I hear the mom talk to the laptop. Yes, Your Honor, she's here. And she asked to do the hearing at her favorite coffee shop in Goodyear. What? So immediately I, I take out my, my AirPods out of my ears so I could figure out what in the world was going on. And friends, it didn't take me long to realize that what was happening there at the, en route on Wednesday morning was an adoption proceeding with the judge being held over Zoom. The family was adopting what looked to me to be an 11 or 12-year-old girl. The whole thing lasted five to seven minutes. And it closed with the judge saying, I hereby pronounce you to be a member of the blank family. And immediately, as you might imagine, applause breaks out spontaneously, both in the family and in the coffee shop. Tears are flowing. And me, the annoyed pastor curmudgeon, am now clapping with them and thrilled about the privilege to witness something so special. Friends, I thought it was just a family making noise. Instead, it was a little girl becoming a daughter and a sister. There was far more to it than what initially met the eye. Friends, I feel the same way about the book of Jonah. It's such a familiar story to us, isn't it? We we all know the story of Jonah and the whale. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, my guess is that you've probably heard this story. And even though this story is familiar to us, I think you'll find that there is more to Jonah than initially meets the eye. There's far more to be seen in this story than a a fish swallowing a wayward prophet. In fact, we're going to discover within the book that the fish really is not the point at all. The fish is not the main character, friends. Jonah isn't even the primary actor. He's certainly not the hero. In fact, Jonah is kind of like an anti-hero. The main character, the primary actor, the hero of the story is our God. The story of Jonah is the story of the Lord. It's the account of God's stunning mercy and purpose of salvation for all nations, despite the sin of Jonah. It's the story of God's freedom to save whoever He wills, whenever He wills, however He wills. And as God progressively pushes Jonah outside his self-imposed boundary lines about who he's willing to minister to, friends, so he intends to do the same for those like us who read this story. So, beloved, let's come and let's listen to the story of Jonah with fresh ears and an open heart. It may be that the Lord will use this story, friends, to transform your life and change your perspective 
forever. So turn to Jonah chapter 1. It's on page 774 of the Bible under your seats. Please feel free to use that Bible if you don't have one this morning. Before we launch in, let's find our bearings in the Bible. Uh, the book of Jonah is, is part of what, what's known as the book of the Twelve in the Hebrew Bible or the minor prophets in our Bible. Certainly not minor in importance, but minor in length. Hosea through Malachi in general wrote shorter works than Isaiah through Daniel, the major prophets. But even though Jonah is located in the prophets, Jonah is not, surprisingly, primarily a work of prophecy. In fact, there's only one verse of prophecy in the entire book. Instead, Jonah is mostly a narrative or a story with a, with a prayer poem sandwiched in the middle in chapter 2. In fact, it's, it's a biography, really, of a specific part of Jonah's life. And if Jonah is indeed the author of this account, which is certainly very possible that he just wrote the account in the third person, well, then Jonah is an autobiography that he wrote for the benefit of the people of Israel and now for the benefit of Christ's church. Well, so who is this man, Jonah? Well, other than what we learn in this book, we really don't know much about him. He does appear in one other place in the Bible, in 2 Kings chapter 14. In 2 Kings 14, 23 to 27, it tells about the reign of King Jeroboam II, the king of the, the northern kingdom of divided Israel. He reigned for 40 years from 786 to 746 B.C. Friends, even though Jeroboam II was a wicked king, he restored the borders of Israel back to where they were during the reign of King David after years of interference from invading foreign nations. And 2 Kings 14.25 says that Jeroboam did this border expansion project, listen, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai. So at the very least, we can locate Jonah's ministry in the 8th century BC in the northern kingdom of Israel during the rule, during the rule of wicked king Jeroboam II. Friends, Jonah ministered roughly at the same time as the prophets Hosea and Amos. And given what we know from, from the kings and, and from Hosea and Amos, we know that, that Jonah ministered during a time that Israel had given herself to idolatry and to rampant wickedness. Well, I'll give more of the context in a bit, but for now, let's read together the first 16 verses of Jonah 1. And friends, as we do, I want you to listen for repeated phrases or repeated words that will kind of help you understand how the author put this together. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, 
Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, I think there are three sections to this narrative plot line, to this section of the scripture that really, I hope, tailor the, the, the arc of the plot line of the story. Number one, and I'm going to name these, these main points as kind of summary statements of each scene in, in the story. Number one, in verses one to three, we see the sprint, the sprint. Number two, the storm in verses four to ten. Number three, the sacrifice in verses 11 to 16. My friend, uh, Matt Smethers, who preached here a few months ago, uh, preached through Jonah in, in 2017 at our former church. We, we were there together. And so I sent this outline to Matt saying, hey, what do you think about this? How would you divide up this, this sermon? He goes, bro, that is my outline. <laughs> I, had, I had not written it down. I did not remember that. But... I said, brother, can, are you okay with I, if I use this? No problem. So if someone out there listens to Matt and listens to me, I did not plagiarize. It's just great minds thinking alike, I guess. I don't know. The sprint, the storm, the sacrifice. Here's the main idea, I think, from these verses of Jonah 1. I hope it'll be the main idea of the sermon. Rebellion against the Lord is foolish and destructive, but it cannot threaten his sovereign purpose. Rebellion against the Lord is foolish and destructive, but it cannot threaten his sovereign purpose. Beloved, I pray that the Lord will use his word among us today to both highlight the folly of rebellion and sin against the Lord, but also to highlight the glory of God's sovereignty and his mercy to us. Let's look at the first three verses, which I've summarized as the sprint Verse 1 begins with the, the calling card of prophetic ministry. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Friends, what did it mean to be a prophet of the living God, but to be the recipient of his revelation? God's word drew the prophets into his presence to see things from his perspective, and then he commissioned them to proclaim what they received. 
And what is it that the the Lord by his word commissioned Jonah to do? Verse 2, it's clear. Arise, up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Friends, it would be hard to overstate just how shocking this command was, both to Jonah and most likely to the original Israelite readers of this book. And it's shocking on a number of levels. First, the command is shocking because it's unprecedented. It's unprecedented in Israel's history. Never before had the Lord commissioned his prophet to go outside the the boundaries of Israel to proclaim his word to Gentiles. The closest thing maybe is Elijah being told to go to the widow of Zarephath and Tyre and Sidon, but that was not for the same purpose. Uh, Up until then, the prophets had only been sent to preach to God's people. That's true. Several prophets proclaimed oracles of judgment against the nations, but never from within those nations that they proclaimed God's word against. We know God's purpose of salvation included the Gentiles. We know this. He had promised Abraham. We study this in Genesis. God promised Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed through a future offspring of Abraham, a great king who would come to save. Many of the Psalms, like Psalm 96 that we read as our call to worship today, sing about the fulfillment and, and of the vision and the call for the nations to worship the Lord. Likewise, when the Lord established Israel as a nation at Sinai, he commissioned his people to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. As the apple of his eye, Israel was commissioned like Adam and Eve in the garden to reflect God's glory to the watching world, to exercise his dominion on the earth. Friends, God's glory was to be visible in a special way through the people of Israel in the land of Israel. As Israel's history progressed, the Lord even designated a a particular parcel of land to be the very location where his special presence would dwell. King Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, and there the glory of God's special presence was seen and known. So why is it important to know all of that? Why did I take a minute to go through a little bit of Israel's history and the kind of the, the, the infrastructure of God's relationship with his people and Israel's mission? Well, friends, Jonah would have known that Israel did indeed have an, had a mission to the surrounding nations. But friends, it was predominantly a come and see mission. The nations were invited to come and see God's glory on display in the land through a worshiping people. It was not until Jesus died and rose again that the mission of God's people predominantly becomes go and tell. But here, Jonah was given a go and tell commissioning. This commissioning was shocking because it had no precedent. It was also shocking because of where God called him to go. At the mere mention of Nineveh, I imagine a chill running down Jonah's spine. Uh, Lord, can you run that by me again? You want me to go to Nineveh? Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, one of the world's superpowers and a particularly brutal nation. Israel, uh, Assyria's military was renowned for its bloodthirsty and gory violence. Ancient records speak of the Assyrian army after capturing enemies, cutting off their legs and and one arm, leaving one arm remaining so that they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. You might liken Assyria to the atrocities 
of Nazi Germany or to the brutality of ISIS. To show up and announce God's pending judgment would strike fear in any normal person. And I'm sure it did with Jonah. And it wasn't just theoretical to him, Israel, uh, Assyria's threat. Assyria had already threatened Israel in its history. It was one of Israel's geopolitical enemies. And even if there wasn't a current threat at this time, there would be again in the future. In fact, friends, Hosea, a contemporary of Jonah, prophesied that God would judge the northern kingdom through who else? Assyria. Listen to Hosea 11.5. They, the people of Israel, shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. Did Jonah know this word from the Lord? Perhaps he did. We don't know for sure, but perhaps his fierce resistance to God's word was because he knew that obeying God might lead to mercy for Assyria and judgment for Israel. In chapter 4, just a little bit of a sneak preview. In chapter 4, he, admit, he admits to the Lord that, that he knew that delivering God's word to Nineveh would mean the potential of their repentance and God's mercy, and he did not want that. He had no interest in God being good to Nineveh. So right from the jump, friends, friends, the message of Jonah challenges us, doesn't it? Is there any person, any nation, any people group that you wouldn't want to experience God's mercy? Is there anyone that comes to mind or whom you're harboring such resentment that you'd rather them experience God's wrath and hell forever than to be the recipient of his saving grace. Friends, how would you have responded to a direct call from the Lord to preach the gospel to the Taliban or the soldiers of Al-Qaeda the day after 9-11? How do you think of Israel's geopolitical, uh, excuse me, how do you think of America's geopolitical enemies today? Do you conceive them purely in geopolitical terms or are you simultaneously able to see the peoples of Russia and the peoples of China and of Iran and North Korea as peoples and lands in dire need of the gospel of Jesus Christ just like ours is? What about people who don't look like you? What about people from another place? What about people who are in our country illegally? Would you show the love of Christ to them? What about those with a different skin color? What about those who've made sinful choices, like a, a gay or transgender coworker? Is there any person or group of people that you would not want to experience God's mercy, even through you. Friends, if any opposition rose up in your heart when I asked these questions, then perhaps you're starting to get a glimpse of what arose in Jonah's heart in the 8th century B.C. Just as, as Jonah delivered the message to Jeroboam to expand the borders of Israel, so God was calling Jonah to expand the borders of his heart. God was calling him to love his enemies. 
And so God is calling us today. Look at verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. God's call was arise and go, but instead Jonah rose and ran in the exact opposite way. Friends, Jonah's response was as forceful a no as you could get. It was the ultimate act of rebellion. His agenda and the Lord's agenda were on a collision course, and Jonah concluded that he knew better than God did. There was simply no reason for Nineveh in Jonah's mind to experience God's mercy, and so he ran. He ran in the exact opposite way that the Lord told him to go. Nineveh is a little over 500 miles northeast of Israel. It's located in modern-day Iraq. In fact, you can find Nineveh's ruins, friends, today near Mosul on the eastern bank of the Tigris. But instead of heading northeast, Jonah booked a one-way ticket to Tarshish, which most scholars think is on the southwest coast of Spain. It was the far western rim of the known world. Friends, if, if it wasn't so deadly serious an issue, it would be comical, wouldn't it? What Jonah did was a parody of what God told him to do. He turned his back on the Lord and he abandoned his post as a prophet of Israel. I think there are a couple ways that the author really skillfully shows us the depth of Jonah's sin. First of all, he brackets verse, verse number... Three, yes, verse number three, he brackets by the presence of the Lord. At the beginning and at the end of the verse, did you notice that? From the presence of the Lord, away from the presence of the Lord. And it points to the enormity of Jonah's rebellion. Surely, friends, Jonah knew theoretically that he could not outrun the Lord. Surely his conscience told him that his efforts to skirt around the Lord's will were as silly as a toddler trying to outrun his parent. But sin makes one temporarily insane. And so Jonah seeks to put some distance between himself and the place of God's call, the place where God's covenant presence dwelt in the land of Israel. Friends, Jonah's running was tailored after his father Adam and his mother Eve in the garden, when they too questioned God's word and then hid from the presence of God, depriving themselves of their very source of goodness and life. Friends, this is what we all do in our sin. We question the goodness of God's word, and then we run from the goodness of his presence. The second way we see the depth of Jonah's sin is in the repeated use of the word down to describe his actions. He went down to Joppa, verse 3 says. He even financed his sin, right, by purchasing a ticket to Tarshish. Then verse 5 uh, says that Jonah descends down into the inner part of the ship. Every step of the way, the author wants us to see the progressive slide downward of Jonah's spiritual life. Sin, friends, is like an undertow ready to pull Jonah under. And of course, his descent didn't stop in the hold of the ship, did it? Eventually, his spiritual slide is mirrored by his descent into the deep. And here's the scary part. To Jonah, it did not look like that was happening at all, did it? 
After all, he made it to Joppa. And once he got there, there was an opening on a ship going the, the direction that Jonah wanted to go. Maybe Jonah saw this as an open door in God's providence. We can imagine Jonah breathlessly counting out the coins to pay the captain, right? His adrenaline pumping as the, as the boat pulls away from the port and his, his Joppa, which is by modern-day Tel Aviv, his Joppa disappears on the horizon. Perhaps as Jonah lay down to sleep that night, he fell asleep with a relieved exhaustion. He had made it. He was going to get away with it after all. Friends, let this small detail in Jonah's story sober you. When we're running from the Lord, we ought not to mistake favorable circumstances as signs of God's approval or of our success. What may seem like upward mobility, circumstantially, may be an illusion for the downward drag of our sin. When we have a heart to run from God, we might even find that God providentially allows the means to do so temporarily. The job that would rob us of our priorities of family or church is just right there. It's there for the taking. The illicit relationship could be ours. The social status that would cause us to compromise our witness is there to be had. Oh, beloved, don't make the mistake. Don't mistake the mirage of opportunity for the substance of God's favor. That opportunity provides a test, and the Lord will not be mocked. It's a lesson that Jonah would find out soon enough. Let's look at the second scene, the storm. Look at verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Sinclair Ferguson eloquently wrote, The ship lying in the Joppa harbor was not meant to be a means of escape from God's clearly revealed word, but the most terrible instrument in the hand of God to bring his servant back to his senses. Friends, there's no mistaking the source of the storm. It was not random. It was not merely that the Lord allowed it. No, he was the source of it. It literally, the text says, came from his hand. The one who made the seas now hurled a great wind upon it like a warrior would hurl a spear, like you and I would hurl a baseball, like the sailors hurled the cargo overboard. And friends, the storm found its intended target. Beloved, we know enough about the ways of the Lord to know that not every storm in our life is the direct result, one-to-one, of, of sin. There's an entire book of the Bible, the book of Job, to tell us otherwise. We know that we live in a fallen world. It's ravaged by the effects of the curse. Sadness and suffering and death are part and parcel of life in this world until Jesus comes to make all things new. And we know that God in His wisdom often ordains what seems to us like calamity in order to teach us more about Himself and in grace to conform us to the image of His Son. We often learn best, don't we, in the school of suffering. 
But while not every storm is the result of sin, we know that all sin has consequences. I like how one theologian put it. And the Bible does not say that every difficulty is the result of sin. But it does teach us that every sin will bring you into difficulty. If you actively work against the grain of God's design for His world, well, you're actively working against yourself, whether you realize it or not. At the very least, friends, sin robs us of joy. It hardens our conscience. It traps us in the pit of our own rationalizations about it. Yet, we know there are times when the Lord intervenes directly. He steps in dramatically to correct and discipline us in love. And if you've ever experienced such a time, it's, it's usually obvious that He's doing that, isn't it? The Lord knows how to get His point across. And here with Jonah, the result of his sin is immediate. God intervenes quickly and obviously in hurling the storm. Verse 4 says that the storm was, was so violent that the ship threatened to break apart because of the waves. According to verse 5, the mariners, the very ones accustomed to storms at sea, were, were terrified. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Friends, the sailors' terror is really all you need to know about the storm's ferocity, right? It was evident to them that this was no ordinary storm. So awful was it that the mariners just turned immediately to prayer. Each member of this international polytheistic crew cried out to his own God, the text says. But this situation is far too serious for false religion to resolve. Since the gods didn't answer, the sailors turned back to their own resources. They counter the Lord's hurl with hurls of their own. They throw the cargo into the water to lighten the ship and to keep it afloat. You know, every time I read this story, I just feel sorry for these guys. I feel sorry for the mariners. They are not part of Jonah's sin, but they are certainly caught up in the consequences of it. It's a reminder, friends, that sin has a ripple effect. When you look behind your sin you'll always find others caught in the wake of its consequences. And yet, where in the world is Jonah all this time? The end of verse 5 has a surprise for us. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Friends, the running prophet, well, he's now the sleeping prophet. Given what we know of the story so far, this was not the sleep of peace, but the sleep of sorrow, or maybe the sleep of false peace. Jonah was no doubt physically, emotionally, spiritually drained. Surely his conscience was racked with guilt, and so he, he slept to escape reality. Friends, you can't help but just see ironies in the text, in the story. The narrator highlights for us here. Look, at, there's Jonah, right? He's the, he's the servant of the one true and living God. And he's completely oblivious to the peril. Meanwhile, pagan sailors are vividly alert. Jonah is absorbed in his own world while the sailors are working overtime for the good of others. They pray earnestly to their own gods and yet not once in this entire ordeal do we see Jonah praying to his? 
So dull was Jonah's senses that the ship's captain had to wake him up. Verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? What in the world are you doing, sleepyhead? Why are you asleep when we're all about to die? The next words, friends, are jam-packed with significance. Arise, call out to your God. Have we heard that anywhere before? That's right. The captain's words are a haunting echo of the word of the Lord from verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 2, excuse me. Arise, call out. Jonah 1.6, arise, call out. Even in waking Jonah up, the pagan captain was exposing Jonah's guilt. He said to Jonah, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. It kind of reminds you of Paul's experience in polytheistic Athens in Acts 17 when he, when he came across the altar to the unknown God, the, the Athenians attempt to, to make sure that, that no God was left unappeased. And here the captain appeals to the groggy prophet to placate his God as well. He invites Jonah to pray, but Jonah responds in silence. It was only after they cast lots, according to verse 7, did we finally get a response from him. Now, we don't know exactly what the casting of lots was. Most scholars think it's you know, colored stones that land on a certain side. It was a bit like rolling dice as a way to discern the intent of the gods. To be singled out by the lot was to be divinely selected, or so was the thought. So the mariners cast lots, and lo and behold, it landed on Jonah. What a lucky bounce, right? How fortunate for the sailors. No, friends, just as the Lord hurled the storm in his sovereignty, now he controlled the bounce of the lot. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. No place in the Bible are we instructed to discern God's will through these type of means, but we can at the same time be confident that even as he is sovereign over, over things like creation, he is sovereign over things that are random to us, like the roll of the dice. If he wants the Lot's decision to accord with truth, well, he certainly has the authority to ensure that it does. From this point on, the sailors know full well who is responsible for bringing this crisis upon them. Jonah, you can imagine, right? He staggers out of bed. The, the, the ship is reeling and rolling. He makes his way up onto the deck. The rain is pouring. The thunder is cracking. The lightning is flashing. And he is met by just a barrage of questions. Paraphrasing verse 8. Who's responsible for this? What is your occupation? Where are you from? What's your nationality? What's your ethnicity? Jonah answered their last question first. Verse 9, And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And Jonah's words ring hollow, don't they? He confesses to being a Hebrew. He says he fears the Lord. He recognizes him as the creator of the entire world. After all, what more is there to the world than the sea and the dry land? Jonah's creed was correct, but it was not matched by his life. Ah, oh, beloved, it's not enough for our theology to be right. 
Sound doctrine should breed sound living. Truth is to be coupled with love and holiness. Jonah knew who God was, but when push came to shove, his knowledge turned out to merely be at the level of theory. It was academic. He had not soaked it deep into his soul so that when he was squeezed, out came humility and submission to this Lord of heaven and earth. Jonah confessed to fear the sovereign creator while resisting his will at the same time. There's a little Jonah in all of us, isn't there? A little bit. Until the day we die, we'll we'll not perfectly reflect our beliefs by our actions. In fact, our sanctification process, our growth in Christ, it's the process of growing in knowledge, yes, growing in theology, growing in sound doctrine, and then bringing our lives in alignment with that knowledge. Biblical wholeness and integrity demands that our theological creed and our ethical behavior match. Well, in response to Jonah's confession, look at the response of the sailors in verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Verse 5, it told us that the mariners were afraid because of the storm. Now in verse 10, their fear has escalated. The men were exceedingly afraid in light of the news that Jonah was on the run from the creator of the heavens and the earth. So here at the verse, at the end of verse 10, Jonah's sprint from the presence of the Lord. It just pounds like a drumbeat once again in this text, doesn't it? From the presence of the Lord. From the presence of the Lord. From the presence of the Lord. Yet praise God, Jonah could not evade God's presence. Jonah may have thought he could outrun the Lord, but God in his love pursued Jonah. Jonah may have escaped Israel, but he did not escape the sovereign hand of the Lord. Friends, praise God. God loved Jonah enough not to let him get away with his rebellion. Praise God that he's sovereign enough to hurl the fury of the storm over Jonah's head, yet use its gales and terror to rain down mercy upon him. The Lord did not let Jonah die in the storm. He preserved him through it. Brothers and sisters, one cannot help but see the parallels of this storm on the Mediterranean with another storm some 700 plus years later on the Sea of Galilee. Matthew 8 describes the storm on the Sea of Galilee. That that day is a great storm, just as God hurled a great wind in Jonah's storm. Just as the sailors were stricken by terror and the fear of death, so were the disciples on that day. Just as Jonah slept in the hold of the ship, so the Lord Jesus slept in the stern amid the raging wind and waves. Yet our Lord was exhausted after doing ministry. And Jonah was exhausted by his efforts to run from ministry. Jonah slept a sleep of escape. Jesus slept the sleep of peace, fully embracing the will of the Father. Jonah was awakened from his sleep to be made aware that the master of the wind and waves had sent the storm. Jesus was awakened as the master of the wind and waves so that he might hush the storm with his word. Peace, be still. 
Beloved, as much as we can learn from the mistakes of, of Jonah and the storm that followed him, we ought to praise God that the one greater than Jonah came. The ruler of the seas lived among us so that he might save us. And that leads us to our third scene and the final point this morning. We've seen the sprint and the storm, and now we see the sacrifice. Look at verse 11. They said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Friends, once again, we see the dignity of the sailors. They didn't immediately take Jonah up on his offer and chuck him overboard, did they? Verse 13 says, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Friends, these mariners were willing to risk their lives to dump Jonah on the shore rather than knowingly usher him to a watery grave. But when they realized that the Lord fought against them, and their rowing was getting them nowhere, they prayed in verse 14, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Beloved, it appears that in pursuing Jonah, the Lord was pursuing the hearts of these pagan sailors as well. Because in this prayer, they not only pray to be released from blood guilt, they acknowledge the utter sovereignty of God. You, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. Such a statement is made only three other times in the entire scripture. Psalm 115.3, Psalm 135.6, Isaiah 46.10. Three times, and interestingly, each time it's in the context of God's rule over his entire creation in contrast with the futility of worshiping idols. And here it appears that the men turn from their pagan idolatry to serve the one true and living God. After the entire episode was over and the sea calmed, what happened? Look at verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They went from being afraid of the storm in verse 5 to being exceedingly afraid in verse 10 to fearing the Lord exceedingly. Verse 16, their fear of death was swallowed up by their fear of the Lord. It reminds me of a, another wicked sailor whom the Lord spared from a storm while at sea. John Newton, the slave trader turned pastor, would write, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. The mariners feared the Lord and they worshiped him. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord. They vowed vows. Friends, it has the markings of true believers because we see Jonah in chapter two expressing that same desire to sacrifice and to make vows. It seems that the pagans had joined the people of God. Beloved, I think here's where the main idea that I gave you earlier of this text comes into full view. Jonah in this story is literally the epitome of an anti-missionary. I used to help lead a mission board. We would not have appointed Jonah, right? He's not going with our, our, our uh, agency. He rejected God's call. He hardened his heart against the blight of Nineveh. Nineveh. He runs in the opposite direction that God had sent him. Yet in the end, 
God ends up saving the very type of people that Jonah had such a disdain for. God is so utterly sovereign that he makes Jonah and his rebellion the agent of the sailor's salvation. And if you've ever doubted that God is sovereign in salvation, look no further than this story of Jonah. If you've ever been tempted to think yourself an indispensable part of, you know, an indispensable player on God's uh, gospel team, well, read this story again and recalculate, right? God doesn't need any of us to accomplish his purpose. And praise God that the normal means of evangelism and conversion is for, for we as believers to open our mouths and to share the gospel. But friends, the Lord is not up in heaven wringing his hands when we fail to. He is free to save whom he wills, how he wills, when he wills. And how did God save these Gentiles? What was the pivotal moment that assuaged his wrath and calmed the waters? It was through the self-sacrifice of an Israelite. Look at what happened in verse 16. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. Commentators on Jonah have differing opinions on, on exactly what Jonah was thinking when he offered himself up to be cast into the sea. Some have speculated, well, was he taking full responsibility here? Was he repentant? Was he essentially saying, I deserve to die for my sin against God, so, so kill me? Or was it the exact opposite? Was Jonah still obstinate in his rebellion? Something like, I'd rather die in the sea than go to Nineveh, so kill me. It's probably somewhere in the middle. Nowhere in this chapter do we see clear evidence of repentance. But, but from my vantage, as I study the text, Jonah's acknowledgement of God's absolute sovereignty in verse 9 leads me to see a, a slight softening in him. It seems likely to me that the, the plight of the mariners on his account moved his heart to pity. After all, he acknowledges in verse 12, it's because of me that this tempest has come upon you. So hurl me into the sea. Jonah is saying, you shouldn't die because of me. Rather, I'm the one who should be dying for you. Next week, we'll investigate what Jesus calls in Matthew 12, the sign of Jonah a bit more fully. Jesus compares Jonah's three days and three nights in the belly of the fish with his own burial and resurrection. But friends, there is no burial or resurrection without first Jesus' death. The three are tied together theologically. Just as is in his burial and resurrection, we see Jesus as the one greater than Jonah. So now we see in his death. Just as Jonah was willingly cast into the water of certain death to save the sailors from God's wrath, so Jesus, friends, was willingly cast into the waters of death to bear the punishment that our sins deserve. But friends, whereas Jonah was willing to die because of his own rebellion, Jesus, the sinless one, went to his death for ours. When he cried, it, it is finished upon that cross. The storm of God's justice over our head dissipated in an instant. His sacrifice saved us if we turn from our sin and trust in him. Friend, if you're here and not a Christian, I hope you'll see in the story of Jonah much more than the, than the big fish. 
I hope as we study this story of Jonah, you'll see it as the story of God's love for sinners like you and like me. Don't be distracted by details that you don't totally understand, that you miss how this story points you toward the only one who can save you from the penalty of your sin and reconcile you to God. Friends, let's not spend so much time looking at the anti-hero that we miss what the hero is doing. Our God is at work to gather a people from among the nations, bringing salvation through judgment and mercy. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for passages in your word like Jonah 1 that at the same time sober us and challenge us and rebuke us while thrilling us about your mercy to us. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the implicit warning that we see in the book of Jonah about Jonah's sin and his rebellion and the consequences of his sin. Yet at the same time, Father, we praise you for your mercy so clearly displayed so clearly displayed to the mariners, so clearly displayed through Jonah. Well, Father, we thank you for, for how it points our eyes to the one who's greater than Jonah, our Lord Jesus, our King, who died and rose again in our place. Well, Father, as we go throughout this story, I, I pray that you would continue, us to challenge, uh, continue to challenge us with the truths of the book of Jonah. Oh, Father, lift our eyes and our hearts beyond the self-made boundary lines. Help us see people in need of Jesus and push us to them, we pray. We ask in his name. Amen.